We, uh, we met as a teaching team and we decided that um, it would be good for us to spend a little time in the study of the book of Acts. And so we're going to start that this morning. We're going to start the study of the book of Acts and I've entitled the lesson of the morning, Thy Kingdom Come, because that's what happens in the first uh, few chapters of Acts, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. Somebody told me that I, my responsibility was to cover the entire book of Acts. I'm not sure that's going to happen for you this morning, because Paul in the middle of it said he was going to preach till midnight, and I'm sure you guys aren't going to want to be here that long. So we will touch briefly, historically, chronologically, what's in the book, uh, some stuff like that, but we're really going to focus on the first couple of chapters and some of the other... Uh, some of the other brothers are going to talk about some other things that are going to happen in the book of Acts. There's a there's a um, some scripture out of Isaiah chapter 2. It says, It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow unto it. So you can take that word mountain and you can really substitute the word kingdom there. That's what the prophet was talking about. He was talking about this kingdom that was going to be established and it was going to be established in Jerusalem and it was going to be the biggest kingdom there ever was and that this kingdom was not going to be destroyed and that all nations, all people would flow into this kingdom. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit this morning. So the gospel is ending. We can remember that Jesus was crucified. He was laid in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. The next morning, the stone was rolled away. Mary Magdalene, Mary, Salome, Joanna, and other ladies came to the tomb. Peter and John had come to the tomb. Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. And He appears to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. So this is all going on in the last few chapters of the gospels. Peter and his friends go fishing and Jesus appears to them, uh, to the seven of them that are fishing and they have a meal there on the coastline. He, he's, when they come off the boats, when they figure out who it is, he said there's, says there's a bed of coals there and they have a meal. They cook some of the fish that they'd caught. Jesus appears to the eleven minus Thomas. We remember that story. Thomas didn't believe and then Jesus appears to all of them with Thomas. Uh, that would be the twelve, I guess. The, the eleven with Thomas would be twelve. Uh, criticizes them for having so little faith. And we'll talk about that in a minute. And then he delivers the great commission and then he ascends to the Father. And that is the first act. And that's the act of Jesus. And that's the four Gospels. And then we kind of have this fade to black and there's a little bit of a time period as the Gospels have ended and Jesus has ascended and everybody's wondering what's going to happen. Because even now, the apostles that have been told to go to Jerusalem and wait are waiting on a physical kingdom. They're still thinking that this, there's going to be a new physical Jerusalem. There's still people today, some in the Jewish faith, some in other faiths, that are waiting for a physical kingdom to come and be established. And of course, we know that's not what Jesus ever was talking about and that's not what he meant. And we'll talk a little bit about that. <clears throat> so there was some unfinished business. We remember the, the passage we read in Isaiah that was on the board this morning, that there was going to be something established, that it was going to be the biggest that there ever was. All nations were going to flow onto it. It was never going to be destroyed. 
we remember the dream in Daniel uh, that during or Daniel two and then in Daniel I think nine where the Nebuchadnezzar dream was. We remember he has this dream of this this uh, image, and um, the king says, "I want you to I want all of you wise men to interpret my dream." And they say, "Well, Daniel, if you'll tell us your dream, we'll be glad to interpret." He said, "No, if I tell you my dream, you might just make up an interpretation. I want you to tell me what I dreamed and what the interpretation of it is. Nobody could do it, but Daniel." And Daniel told him, he said, King, here's the dream. Here's the dream you had. You had this big image that appeared. And here's what it means. You're the king. You're, the, you're this, this king of Babylon right now. But guess what? Your kingdom's not going to last forever. There's going to be another kingdom that comes in, the Medo-Persian kingdom. There's going to be a Greece, a kingdom of Greece, Alexander the Great. And then there's going to be this Roman kingdom that comes. And the prophecy there is that in the days of these kings is when this nation's this thing's going to be established. This kingdom's going to be established. It would never be destroyed. So they know all of this. They're waiting on this kingdom, right? That's what they're waiting on. Mark chapter 1 says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. So they know it's close. It's almost there. In Mark chapter 9, it said he tells them it's going to happen in their lifetime. They're not going to pass away before it happens. It's got to be close. Whatever this is, this kingdom is, it's got to be close. And they're waiting on it. Matthew chapter 16, Peter is told about this kingdom. He's told it's going to be the church. He's told he's going to have the keys to it. And he's still thinking physical kingdom at this point. It tells us all of that. Joel chapter 2 says that there's going to be in the last days, there's going to be a spirit, a spiritual outpouring. They don't understand that for sure. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1 tells us that these last days that they're talking about is when we listen to Jesus, right? It says, God at sundry times and divers manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by His Son. So they know Jesus has come. They've got to be in these last days. These prophecies, but they're still they're, they're not here yet. Luke chapter 11 talks about the Holy Spirit. Jesus tells them the Holy Spirit would come. He tells them in John that He's going to send them a comforter. But yet, none of this has happened yet. They're in Jerusalem just waiting and waiting for what's next. He told them a lot about the kingdom. He told him about the kingdom was like this person that sowed seed. There was a parable, it's called the parable of the weeds. But it said this guy went out and he sowed seed, and the good seed came up. But at nighttime, the enemies sowed weeds in his field. And it says, What are we going to do about that? He said, Are we going to go in and chop down all the weeds? He says, No, don't do that because you might harm some of the good seed. He says, What we'll do is we'll just wait for the harvest. And we'll separate the good seed, the good people, from the bad people. We'll burn up the bad people, or the bad the bad seeds, the weeds. He tells us that the kingdom is uh, like this mustard seed. It says a little bitty tiny, tiny seed, but you plant it, and it grows not only into a plant, but into a tree. It's like a little bit of leaven that you put into the bread, a little bit of leaven, and it leavens the whole lump. That's the way the kingdom is. It's going to start small, but it's going to blow up. It's going to get so big. Again, like the prophecy had said, it was going to be the biggest kingdom ever. It was never going to be destroyed. 
It's going to be like this hidden treasure. Man finds a hidden treasure in a field. And he goes and sells, he hides it, goes and sells everything that he's got, and he goes and he buys that field. It's got the hidden treasure. That's the way the kingdom is going to be. It's the way it's supposed to be to us. It's worth everything to us. But yet, it hasn't come yet. They haven't seen it. It's going to be like the pearl of great price. I can't do justice to this one. You need to, if you can find the, the sermon that Brother Truman used to do on the pearl of great price. He, can, he did a whole sermon on a couple of sentences in the Bible on the pearl of great price. But again, it's that same concept of, man, it's worth everything in the world to me. Nothing is more important. It talks about the kingdom being like a king that takes account of his servants. It talks about this servant that owed the king a lot of money and he brings him in and he says, pay me what you owe me or I'm going to put you in prison. And he begs the king and he pleads with the king and he says, king, don't put me in prison. I promise I'll pay what I owe you. And so he goes, okay, and the servant leaves and he goes out and he gets mad at somebody that owes him a few dollars when he owed the king hundreds of thousands of dollars. And he gets mad at that guy and he starts railing on this guy and the king finds out about him and he said, bring this guy back to me and deliver him to the tormentors until I've got my money. It's like that. It's like us that have gotten forgiveness of sins and been shown the mercy of God, but yet we won't extend that to another fellow man. All of our sins have been forgiven. We've been put into the kingdom, but yet when somebody else wrongs us in some slight way, we hold it against them. He said the kingdom is like that. And what happened to the people that couldn't forgive others? After they had been forgiven. Couldn't show mercy to others after they had been shown mercy. So he delivered to the tormentors. Household hiring, uh, household hiring for the vineyard. He said it's like this guy that hires for his vineyard in the morning. He goes and he hires people to work in the vineyard. He goes out at midday and hires some people to work in the vineyard. He goes out in the evening, hires some people to work in the vineyard. At the end of the day, he pays them all the same amount of money. The first guy goes, wait a minute, I've worked all day. <laughs> I deserve more money than that guy that, that just, just started working. He goes, no, that's not true. When you come to the Lord, you come to the Lord. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in the church and were raised in the church and served Him your whole life or whether you came to the Lord very late in your life. It's important is that you come to the Lord. Everybody's going to get the reward. Everybody's going to get the forgiveness of sins. So He talks to us about the kingdom. But they're not understanding that it's a spiritual kingdom yet. So the Acts of the Apostles is uh, the, uh, the, the name of the book. In chapter 1, he begins by, he says, he talks to this fellow Theophilus and he says that in a former treatise I wrote to you about all the things that Jesus both did and taught. And we know that the former treaty was the former book, was the book of Luke. Luke wrote both books. But he said, I wrote to you in that former book about all the things that Jesus both did and taught. You see, Jesus was not just a teacher. When you read the book, you think about, hey, this great teacher. Jesus was a doer. He lived the life the way we're supposed to live the life. He was both a doer and a teacher. And that's important for us to know. Jesus told the apostles there to wait in Jerusalem in chapter 1. He, it talks again about His ascension. And they ask Him right before He ascends, Jesus, are you about to restore the kingdom? Are you about to restore the kingdom? They're still thinking physical. Right as Jesus is going back to the Father, they're like, when, when are we going to get our kingdom back? He said, it's not, 
It's not, I don't even know. The Father knows the time. The Father knows the time. He doesn't even try to explain it to them. And then they select the 12th. There's an interesting uh, prophecy in Psalms 109 which talks about Judas. If you've got some time to go over there and read about that. But it talks about Judas and it says he's going to be, he was going to be an apostle for a very short time and after that there would be another. And so that prophecy is fulfilled here at the end of Acts chapter 1 as they cast lots and they pray and they decide that Matthias is going to take over as one of the 12 apostles. Before we get to Acts chapter 2, I call this the faith curve and this is, this is just my own thinking. So uh, take it for what it's worth. But I think there's some biblical um, truths behind it. So when, um, when they enter Jerusalem in Luke chapter 19, I'm going to say that their faith is very high. They're entering Jerusalem. He's on the donkey and they're laying their clothes in front of the donkey as it's coming into Jerusalem. It says there that they were all very happy. What did they think, right? We're going in to get our kingdom. We're about to go in. We're kicking these Romans out. We're about to take Israel back. We're going to get our kingdom. They were happy. They were ready. They were going in. And not too long after they're in there, they come to this uh, point in Luke chapter 22 at the Last Supper, and all of a sudden, their countenance kind of falls. Jesus talks to them about, hey, there's going to be somebody that betrays me. Hey, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter's like, no way. Okay. That happiness may be kind of dwindling a little bit. Goes on to the trials, right? And the denials. Peter denies him. The trials of Jesus. And they're thinking, man, this is not going the way we planned. How are we going to get our kingdom back if he's on trial People are hollering, crucify him. Peter's denying him. Things are not going at all the way they planned. And then Jesus is actually executed on the cross. I've got to believe their hearts were at an all-time low. Their faith that something big is going to happen is at an all-time low. In fact, Jesus tells them that after he, after he comes back to life, after he's resurrected, he talks to them about their lack of faith through this whole process. But I would question any of us to wonder how we would feel any different. How would you feel any different as you're, if, you're, if you've got this concept of a physical kingdom and the guy that you think is going to deliver it for you just got hung on a cross and killed? The guy that's going to be the king of your kingdom is dead. That doesn't make any sense to you. So they're kind of at an all-time low. But it starts to build back for them. There's the empty grave. Hey, that's unusual. Our supposed king, has uh, he's not dead. He's, he's arisen. Uh, John, in John chapter 21, they've gone fishing. Jesus appears to them. They cook the dinner. Things are getting better. There's the great commission in Mark 16. He tells them to go into all the world and preach the gospel. He tells them to go to Jerusalem and wait for him. He ascends in Luke 24. And again, it talks about it in uh, Acts chapter 1. But again, everything to this point, they're thinking it's a physical kingdom that's going to happen. And then there's the moment in time, there's the pivot point on Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. 
So in Acts chapter 2, we have the descent of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes upon them. We have Peter unlocking the kingdom with the keys. We have the fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. We have the conviction that many of we have the convicting of many of the Jews of their mistakes and the first converts, and we have the answer to what it takes to be saved. And we have a description there at the end of chapter two of the unity of the church and how all of these Christians that had been converted that day were of the same mind and of the same thoughts. So let's read um, Acts chapter two. It's a, it's, a, it's a lengthy chapter. There's a lot of stuff in here that's really good stuff, though. And so I wanted us to read it together. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. So the day of Pentecost, Pentecost is one of the three feasts that they've got. They've got the, uh, the uh, Passover that they had just celebrated. That Passover was, again, the feast that celebrated their firstborns being passed over in Egypt. They have Pentecost, which is a celebration. It's the, the feast that uh, is the beginning of their harvest. And then they have the Feast of the Tabernacles. Brother, uh, Brother Matt has talked a lot about the Feast of the Tabernacle, or talked a lot about the Tabernacle. The Feast of the Tabernacle was commemorating the 40 years they spent in the wilderness with the Tabernacle. So they're at this feast, this feast, the day of Pentecost. Historians tell us that there were actually probably more people in Jerusalem for Pentecost. This was a more popular feast, I guess, than the uh, Passover feast, actually, that had just happened uh, a few days, 50 days earlier. They were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting you know, for a long time, I read that verse, and, and I thought there was this mighty wind that came through. But that's not what it says, so be careful how we read that. It said there was a sound that came, and it sounded like a rushing mighty wind. It could have been windy. I don't know. But don't make the assumption that just that, that there was wind. I've read that for years and thought there's this big wind that blew in, and that was the Holy Spirit rushing in. Well... There might have been a wind, I don't know. But it said there was a sound that sounded like a rushing mighty wind. In divided tongues, people will uh, call this cloven tongues, as a fire appeared onto them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is the pivotal point in all of time as these guys finally realize this is not a physical kingdom. The Holy Spirit comes on to them. They've got instantaneous knowledge of what's going on. And they begin to speak about it. And they begin to prophesy about it. And they begin to talk about this kingdom, this spiritual kingdom that they're about to unloose and to unleash. And Peter's going to do that with the keys that he was promised. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, again at the sound, the multitude came together. So there was this huge sound. It sounded like wind, but it was a sound that got people to go, hey, what was that? And they began to go towards the sound. They began to move that direction. They came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Perigia and 
Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya belonging to the Serene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. So if you look at a map, and I started to put that up there, but I didn't. Basically, it's the known world. That description that they just gave you from Mesopotamia to Rome to Asia, it's the known world. Everybody, if there's people from every, everywhere in the world that's known at that point in time are here at Pentecost. Somebody is representing them. <clears throat> and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocked, saying, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give an ear to my words. So there's some of them there that are mocking and they're saying, Hey, they're drunk. That's what it is. They're just, they're just, they're just drunk. Peter, it says, lifted up his voice, which means began to raise his voice. He's got to talk over this huge audience, over this huge crowd. He basically starts talking very loudly. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give an ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, about nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So he talks about pouring out the spirit on all of mankind, servants. It doesn't matter whether you're male or female or servants, bond or free. It doesn't matter. He's going to pour the Spirit out. The word prophesy here in this context could have two different meanings, but it probably means their ability to teach, not their ability to foretell the future. The word prophesy can mean both of those, but in this context, most most commentators agree that it just means that these people were able to begin to teach. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. So this prophecy of Joel that comes to pass here, you know, Peter says that this thing is being fulfilled that very day. This Hard to understand prophecy that Joel talks about. He says, you know, today's the day. Joel talked about it. You've been looking forward to it. Everything that he prophesied, we're fulfilling it today. And then he goes on to talk about Jesus and he says that he was um, not able, I'll find it here, uh, the right hand and maybe not be shaken. Oh, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it is not possible for him to be held by it. 
I think most people agree that loosing the pangs of death is the fact that once you, once you pass away, once you go into that waiting place, you can't get out until judgment day, but Jesus could. His Father loosened, loosened those restrictions because the deity God could not remain there. It's an impossibility for him to remain in that position, in that place. So, because it goes on to say for you... Oops, let me go back. For you will not abandon... um, Oh, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul in Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he is both dead and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. So David was prophesying about the fact that somebody was going to be killed and that they were going to be go to Hades, but that they were not going to be able to stay there. And he points out that, hey, the David obviously wasn't talking about himself because the patriarch David is both dead, he's buried, and he's with us here today. You can go to his tomb over here in the middle of Jerusalem and see where David's buried. So David wasn't talking about himself when he said this person wasn't going to be left in Hades. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are witnesses. So he says, this Jesus is the one that David was talking about. He didn't spend time in Hades. His soul did not seek, or his, he was not left there. He did not, he was not, um, flesh did not see corruption in this Hadean realm. He was raised from the dead. You guys know it. We've all been witnesses of it. You know what we're talking about. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut in their hearts and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter says to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. And with many more words he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So Peter basically convinces them, everyone or most of the ones standing there, that they made a huge mistake. It says that it says that they did many signs and many wonders. They heard everybody speaking in their own language. The prophecy of Joel is being fulfilled. This is a pivotal point in the history of the church. It's the beginning of the church. It's why we're here today. It's why we sit in a kingdom with a king. 
And it's why we worship that king. As And with many other words, uh, he bore witnesses and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So they who received his word were baptized. And there were added to the two, and they were and they were added that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and uh, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing. The proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So that is um, Acts chapter 2. A lot of stuff in there. Um, can't can't get into all of it this morning. I just wanted you to understand that that's the pivotal part of this Christian life. That's when Jesus had done everything that he could he he needed to do on this earth. He'd lived the perfect life. He had shed his blood for the remission of sins. He had set up the church. He had set up the keys with Peter. He had put everything in motion that he needed to, to put into motion, and he was leaving it to the apostles and to us to carry forward, to build this mountain, to build this kingdom higher than any other mountain that's ever been built. <clears throat> so the Acts of the Apostles, I'll just real quick go through the book with you. The church at Jerusalem is uh, from chapters 2 to 6. The gospel preached in Judea and Samaria in chapters 6 through 8. The conversion of the eunuch and Saul and Cornelius, or at least one version of the conversion of Saul. Saul's converted several times throughout the book. That's in verses uh, in chapters 8 through 12. Paul's first missionary journey is in 13 through uh, 14. Uh, the dispute about circumcision, circumcision is settled in uh, chapter 15. Paul's second missionary journey in uh, 15 to 18, his third missionary journey in 18 to 21. Then Paul at Jerusalem, his last visit to Jerusalem, his incarceration at Caesarea, his voyage to Rome, and then Paul at Rome uh, is where the book ends uh, in uh, chapter 28. Just a real quick chronology for those that are history buffs. There's a couple of things in the in the book of Acts that allow us to pinpoint a couple of dates in history. I've got those in my notes if you if you want them, but based on those two dates then we can sort of kinda figure out when some of the rest of this stuff uh happened. I wouldn't be dogmatic about any of these dates. These are just approximate dates. The day of Pentecost was approximately AD 33. That's in chapter 2 of the book, and Tiberius was reigning as uh, the Roman emperor. Uh, in A.D. 36, we have the martyrdom of Stephen, uh, which is in chapter 7, and Tiberius was still... Uh, conversion of Paul, A.D. 37, Tiberius was still reigning. I'll just go through these real quick. You can, you can read them faster than I can talk. We have the conversion of Cornelius, the martyrdom of, of James... So James is killed by the sword, it says in uh, chapter 12 and verse number 2. Caligula was the Roman Empire, and that happened in about A.D. 44. Paul's first missionary journey to Lystra and Derby and to Antioch was about 44 to 49, and that's in chapter 13 and 14. 
the Apostolic Council of Jerusalem. That's chapter 15. That's where they have the, the debate over circumcision. <clears throat> Paul's second missionary journey was in 51 to 53. 54 to 57, his third journey, uh, visits Rome in 57. Uh, he's captive from 53 to 60 in uh, Caesarea. Voyages to Rome in 61 and captive in Rome from 61 to 63. You can see we've gone from uh, to Claudius. And now we're Nero uh, is the uh, emperor that's uh, ruling. And obviously you heard a lot about uh, Nero. Nero was uh, very much against Christians. Brother Jeremy, I think, is going to talk to us a little bit about Paul later on, about his journeys, about who he was, about his conversion. Um, there's not a whole lot that's known about Paul as to, you know, what happened to him. He's very, uh, in, in most of his letters to the churches here that he's writing uh, in this period of time, he seems to be pretty confident that he's going to get out of prison. You know, now whether that's his own his own personality or whether that was, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit telling him to, to write that. I don't, I don't know that we could count on that. But, you know, his general nature is that he believes he's going to be released from prison at some point. But I don't know historically the, whether we can prove that or not. <clears throat> so upcoming sermons, uh, Brother Luke's going to talk about the different sects that were involved so that we can understand the book of uh, Acts a little bit further. Mother's Day, is Michael talking on Mother's Day? I'm not sure who's talking on Mother's Day. Then the Apostle Paul, uh, Jeremy's going to talk there. House of Cornelius, uh, Dusty's going to talk about that. Michael's going to drop back into Acts chapter 2 and talk a little bit about the Holy Spirit and the coming of the Holy Spirit and baptism of the Holy Spirit, I think. Uh, All of those uh, things um, that we just kind of glossed over today. Brother Matt's going to talk about Paul's address to the elders uh, that happens there in the book of Acts. So what do we take from all of this? The kingdom, we're in the kingdom. Um, Every verse of scripture, every prophecy up to Acts chapter 2 talks about the kingdom in the future. Everything after Acts chapter 2 looks back to that and talks about the kingdom having been established. So from the verb text, from everything, from the language, the, the, the writers are talking about the kingdom as being established from Acts chapter 2 going forward. So we look at Romans chapter 14. It says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. He's saying this is not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. He tells us what now has become very obvious. In 1 Corinthians 15 it says, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Again, it's a spiritual kingdom. In Colossians it says, Give thanks unto the Father, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So it tells us that we've been translated, we've been put into this kingdom that is being ruled by God's Son. And finally, in Hebrews chapter 12, and this is the one I wanted to leave you with this morning, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, 
for our God is a consuming fire. So we talk about putting the kingdom in its right place. Matthew talks about seeking the kingdom, making it first. Matthew chapter 6, seek ye first the kingdom of God. It says here that we need to be grateful. We need to be thankful that we are able to be in this kingdom. It needs to be the yonder star. It needs to be the thing that's the most important thing in our life. And that's hard. It's hard for me. I know it's hard for you. We live in a we live in a fast-paced world. We live in this great country of America and there's a lot of stuff to do. I would just ask us to spend some time in his word to think about that word grateful to think about what a great blessing it is to live on this side of Acts chapter 2 where it's you're in the kingdom, you understand the kingdom, you know it's not a physical kingdom, you know it's about getting your heart right and living like the Lord lived and being the kind of Christian that He wants you to be. Be grateful, be thankful to be in the kingdom and that's the lesson of the morning. If there's anyone here that would like to be in the kingdom that's not, He told us there in Acts chapter 2 how you do that. You've got to believe. You've got to repent. You've got to be baptized. If you're in the kingdom but you haven't been grateful, it hadn't been the most important thing in your life, it hadn't been the focus of your life, and you'd like for us to pray for you and pray for you to be better focused, to pray pray for your gratefulness of being in the kingdom, we'd be glad to do that. There'd be one of either case if you'd come while we stand and sing.